You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Hello and welcome to another Lozano Smith podcast. Uh, this is actually a special episode, a very special episode because one, we're on location at the California School Board Association's annual education conference, and two, because who I am joined with today. I'll be your host, Sloan Simmons. I'm a, a partner of the Lozano Smith Sacramento office and a co-practice group leader in litigation. But my two guests, with a combined total of 65 years of experience as legal practitioners, um, uh, my honor to be with one, Mike Smith, one of the founders of Lozano Smith, 40 years of work for school districts and other public entities um, and public agencies throughout the state, known as one of the experts uh, in education law uh, by far um, historically and to this day. Mike, you practiced in perhaps every area that there is, maybe not public finance, but uh, labor and employment, students, special education for years. Um, since that time, obviously involvement with CSBA's Education Legal Alliance, as well as roles with the Council of School Attorneys, which is associated with NSBA. And so uh, a pleasure and honor uh, to, to have you today, along with our other uh, very special guest, Catherine Miola, the uh, General Counsel for the California School Boards Association, coming up on your first full year in that role, the first female to hold that position for CSBA in nearly 90 years, and first one ever. Um, and Kathy's experience dates back 25 years of work, 11 and a half or so with the District Attorney's Office in San Mateo County, 50 or more trials um, in, in that role, and then another 11 and a half years with the San Mateo County Council's Office, where Kathy's focus was with uh, educational issues for the County Office of Education, the County Board of Education, as well as work with the San Mateo High School District, Sequoia High School District, San Mateo Community College District, and others, I'm sure. And so, Mike, Kathy, thanks for joining me today. Great to be here. Yes, great to be here. So this morning, you guys were on a larger panel talking about critical issues in education law. We're going to take advantage of having you both at the same place at one time and dig into some of those issues as well as ones that maybe weren't uh, covered in today's panel and to get your unique perspectives on those issues uh, to the benefit of our listeners. So, Kathy, first, let's start with the AW versus Tehachapi um, Unified School District case. And, and perhaps first, for our listeners, give a, a little brief overview of what ELA, CSBA's Educational Legal Alliance, does in relation to cases like the Tehachapi case. Thank you. I love talking about ELA um, because ELA is a chance for school districts to be able to advocate their position on a statewide issue, um, not similar to the advocacy we do with the legislative uh, branch, but in the courts themselves. And so anytime school districts have a case that has a statewide issue, ELA can come in either as a friend of the court and file an amicus brief or actually take cases on behalf of school districts and challenge the courts on, for example, illegal or unconstitutional manipulation of Prop 98 funds, for example. So in the Tehachapi case, uh, ELA will be supporting the district in this particular case on a question as to whether or not school districts need to file for due process when they reach an impasse with a parent. In this particular case, the student was receiving a free and appropriate public education and making progress on his goals. 
This is different than the IR versus LAUSD case, which came out in 2015, where the parents in the district had reached an impasse and the district had kept trying to work with the parents, but it was over a significant period of time, say a year and a half. And during that period of time, LAUSD acknowledged that the student had not been receiving faith and not making progress on his goals, but only because they had reached an impasse with the parents and they weren't able to provide the services that, that they wanted to. Was the, sorry for interrupting, Kelly, but that, the, the LAUSD case, when that came out, if I recall correctly, was kind of a change in the legal landscape itself, right? Absolutely, it was. It was a huge case. Um, and so prior to that point, there were some cases that said if you were continuing to work with the parents uh, to try to resolve the impasse, that was okay. But in this particular case, the court pointed to an, um, an education code statute. A California education Correct. code provision. Correct. Right. Specific to California, indicating that when the district and the parents have reached impasse, the district has an obligation, legal obligation, to file for due process. So that holding is unique, not only for the, the Ninth Circuit, but within the Ninth Circuit as it pertains to California. Absolutely. Got it. And, and California is the only state in the nation, this is inconsistent with the IDEA, we're the only state in the nation with this mandatory due process requirement. Wow. Absolutely. But what's key on that is that the student was not receiving faith. And so the court said the student is losing out in that situation. Right. But in Tehachapi, the student is receiving faith. The student is making progress on his goals. And so his or her goals. And that's undisputed with the family. Well, the district can show that the student okay. is making progress. On As opposed goals, to ad mean. admit and acknowledge that it's that he's, the student is not. Correct. Okay. Um, and <clears throat> it's important for the district to be able to do that. But in this particular case, the parent said, when well, we have reached an impasse, district, you have an obligation to file for due process. And the Tehachapi uh, school district said, no, we're providing faith to the student and the student's making progress. Eventually, um, uh, in the underlying courts, the district has won on this particular issue. And my understanding is that it's being appealed to the Ninth Circuit, where Education Legal Alliance will come in as a friend of the court and um, point out that to have an obligation across the board to have to file for due process in every single situation, regardless of whether the student is receiving faith and making progress, is a financial ownership, right? A financial obligation on school districts and on two in two ways. Number one is that they have to pay for an attorney to bring the case, right? right? And then number two is that if they lose on any part of the case, that's a significant part of the case, they would have to pay attorney's fees on the other side as well. And I know we're going to talk a little later about like another case on that fee issue. Um, those of us all know that the rates that, that our public agency clients can be responsible for, for the other side, are at times dramatic and almost always about twice the rate that what education uh, practitioners charge to, to public agencies. But we'll come back to that, that, that case, Gordon versus LAUSD. But Mike... What about um, Voting Rights Act? I, I, is there, in terms of a critical issue and where we are in California today, can you kind of give us some background on the Voting Rights Act and what you see as the trends in that area? Sure. The Voting Rights Act has become an issue of concern to school districts around the state, in part because the census data is going to be coming out mm. in the next few years. So it is now triggering lawsuits across the, uh, the state of California with plaintiffs coming in sending a demand letter and the request for the $30,000 check. 
that has gotten the attention of school boards throughout the state. And the 30,000, is that statutory? Is it that is. how that works? Okay. So I guess to take a step back, so the, we have three kinds of voting systems in, in California. A pure at-large voting system where all the members of the board are elected by anyone within the boundaries of the district. Pure at-large. Okay. Some districts have what's called a hybrid system where they'll have trustee areas. So in other words, a trustee has to define, has to reside within a defined uh, area, but they're still elected at large. The third is a true by trustee area or by district. Uh, that is the what our law is trying to move us from at large. And both the hybrid and the at large are at risk under the California Voting Rights Act. And it's interesting as I think about it because the case we just talked about was unique to California law. It's inconsistent with the IDEA. Right. California on the Voting Rights Act, similar. In other words, most states are governed by the Federal Voting Rights Act of 1965. But in California, back in 2001, I believe, we adopted the California Voting Rights Act. Unique state law. And what was the rationale for that, Mike, if we already have the federal? Was, it, was there a sense that the Federal Voting Rights Act didn't have the degree of teeth that California legislatures wanted? The folks in California felt like the discrimination was ongoing and it was too difficult to win under the Federal Voting Rights Act. Okay. There had been some districts, including some in the San Joaquin Valley, for example, that had lost uh, under the Federal Voting Rights Act. But essentially, the plaintiff's bar looked at the Federal Voting Rights Act and figured out, how can I make it easy to win? And they lowered the standards and made it easier to win and to get attorney's fees. Okay. Uh, in a Voting Rights Act case. So in essence, if a school board changes from at-large to by trustee area, they're in a safe harbor, immune from attorney's fees. So the ultimate takeaway of this conversation really is that if you are in a district that is still at-large, if you want to avoid the payment of that $30,000 statutory fee demand, then act now and move from an at-large system to a by trustee area system. I was at a board meeting in the last two months or so, and this district's preparing to, to make the change. But something that seemed, I guess, it kind of is what it is. But as a matter of chronology, they were talking about if they make the change now, say today, that they're still going to have to go back. And then as soon as that 2020 census data comes out and they've redrawn boundary stuff, that they're right back at that same process again, right? That's, is that that's how correct. it works? Because yeah. there's a, a statute that says when you have by trustee area voting and then the census comes out, the new census data, right. you have to update it, right, to ensure population balance for the one person, one vote rule constitutional. So for the districts that say, I'm going to go right now prior to the 2020 election and I'm going to put in by uh, trustee area voting, when the census data is then subsequently released, you're going to have to hire a demographer and you're going to have to go back and tweak those boundaries again. So you're going to pay that in effect the demographer two times. So what some districts are doing is they're saying, I'm going to adopt a resolution now. I'm going to go on the record to say we're moving to by trustee area voting and we're going to do it in 2022 utilizing the new census data. <laughs> is it lawful? Yes. <laughs> right. Is, is there but some I mean, risk? But are people, yes. that's still subject to challenge, I guess, is there, what I would There's some yeah, potential yeah. risk. However, the concept here for the attorney's fees comes out of the Serrano versus Priest litigation, right? The, the finance litigation from many years ago. And the concept is that the plaintiff is the catalyst for change. Right. So, so it the wouldn't matter. The school board right. has already adopted a resolution and uh, says, we are going to move to buy trustee voting, then is that person who then subsequently 
sends the demand, truly the catalyst. Right. And that is an untested area of the law at this moment in time. Interesting. And I think what's really important here is staying ahead of the game. That's exactly what Mike is saying. So if school districts have a, school boards have a plan and have looked at this seriously and um, make the change either before they get a demand letter or within this process that we're talking about now, I think that's the key takeaway is, is to recognize that every single public agency that has tried to challenge this so far has lost. Has lost. Right. You know, it's, I don't know if it's, if it's ironic and maybe it's not, but it is to think in 2001 that, that California did this. The reality has been is that at the federal level and at the U.S. Supreme Court, there has been a whittling away at the strength and teeth of the Federal Voting Rights Act. So for those who, who made the push, and obviously there is a, a sincere and, and, uh, and, and good underlying purpose to, to, the, to the statute itself, but they, they actually did get it right because there has been weakening on that level from a federal perspective. I think school districts, when I'm sitting with school boards and I'm talking about Voting Rights Act, School board members take this issue very seriously, right? And in some ways, it's helpful to them because now they don't have to spend as much money because they don't have to campaign in a larger geographical area. So there's some benefit, and that's part of the underlying area here. The concept is to eliminate racially polarized voting. And so that's helpful in, in, in that regard. But the concern that I hear again and again and again from the trustees, and this is played out in a school district up in the Sacramento area, by way of example, is that parochial thinking will overcome the concept of global thinking of these are all of our students. So, for example, what if you're trying to pass a bond and you think that you can pass the bond, but trustee uh, who lives in Area 1 says, I'm not going to support that bond measure because you're not putting enough facilities district in my area. Mm -hmm. So it becomes my area versus my area as opposed to looking globally at the interests of all of the students in that district. So that is a real valid concern I think that school districts bring to the table. And then you have to wind up as the lawyer kind of giving the bad news of, I totally concur, but do you want to fight litigation that you basically can't win. Right, and I think then in those situations, school board members have to work harder to work collaboratively together, um, recognizing that the students of the entire district are their students. Amen. One of the concepts that I've seen that I think attempts to get at that issue is establishing trustee areas where different trustees actually are covering the same school attendance areas. So, So you don't have the polarization of, High school A is my high school. I want that. Multiple trustees involved in touching different attendance areas, which I guess and in that theory is a you, You'll wind up adopting what's called line drawing criteria. And in order to avoid this parochial thinking, doing exactly what you are suggesting is usually recommended. And it is a lawful approach to it. Interesting. So, so let's shift away from that when the $30,000 fee award that can arise for successful catalyst plaintiffs under the Voting Rights Act. And Kathy, talk about Gordon versus LAUSD, another case that uh, ELA is either involved in or looking to become involved in. Yes, so we will be involved in. It's uh, being appealed. uh, That's my understanding. And so right now it's at the district court level. But what has occurred in this case is the it's also a special education case and it's also a due process hearing that went to hearing. Um, But the issues underlying the due process hearing are resolved. The only thing that's remaining right now is the attorney's fees award. And at the district 
um, at the at following the due process hearing, the attorney's fees uh, award was two hundred thousand um, dollars at six hundred and fifty dollars an hour and seven hundred dollars an hour, and that has been appealed to the district court. The district court and LASD did a lot of work on this case in establishing the community rates of attorneys across the across the community, and. The district court issued a ruling reducing the attorney's fees only by $50, so that's $600 an hour and $650 an hour. And at that point, because you get attorney's fees on fees, right, right that the award is uh, more than $300,000. So my understanding is that LAUSD is appealing this and ELA will be supporting the district in this, in this regard. I think it's really, really important for our school districts to understand that even though school law firms may be charging fees that might be half of that, um, the community rates are much, much higher. And so the more cases that go to hearing and become appealed uh, can result in a huge dollar award for the other side. And it's, it's self-perpetuating too, right? You're, if you're an attorney who represents the student side, and rightfully so, there's fee shifting as there are other discrimination statutes to make sure you've got an incentive to be involved. But if you're one of those attorneys and you get one district court judge to award you the rate you sought, that's that's exhibit A1 every time going forward as to what your reasonable rate is. Right. And of course, this is, um, this is a vulnerable population. Cases taken on contingency is something that's definitely needed for these types of cases. However, when you get to these high dollar amounts, I think the incentives can affect the right result in this case. Right. Interesting. And just with ELA, Kathy, about what's the caseload that generally uh, cases that ELA will be involved in at a given point in time throughout the year? So what's great is that we have partnerships with our education law firms, including Lozano Smith. Um, and so we are actually able to take on as many cases as is needed uh, across the state. We have a uh, attorney advisory group and a steering committee. And as long as the, the issues are statewide and um, are beneficial for school districts across the state, we can be involved in as many cases as, as needed because of our partnership with the education law firms. If you're a district or a board that has a case that you think you'd like ELA support in, what's the process for get, reaching out and getting in touch? It's really simple. Just email us. Okay. Email us or call us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are going to set up a new web page, which is going to have a forum to fill out. Um, but at this point, it's just email and phone call. Great, great. Mike, why don't we shift to some of the developments or critical issues as we go into 2020 in the labor and employment context, including some some items that um, relate to the ADA and and probationary periods for um, classified employees. Okay, let's talk about the uh, Americans with Disability Act uh, case first. So there was a case that involved uh, a county, and what happened there was an employee was transferred and ultimately filed a lawsuit claiming that transfer was discrimination based on disability. The county as the employer said, what do you mean disability? We weren't, you never told us you were disabled. We had no clue you were disabled. And the ultimate holding of the court was that when an employee is absent routinely for medical appointments, that that in and of itself puts the employer on notice that they basically knew or should have known that there was a potential for this employee to be disabled. So the holding of the court really pushes us in the public sector employment arena to be aware of when employees might need support. So if you have an employee who has a disability, the kind of two basic obligations that exist for the school district 
are to engage, do what's called an interactive dialogue. So the HR, for example, director might need to sit down with the employee who's been routinely absent and say, how can I help you? I right. see that you're, you've been absent a lot. What support can we provide? And to probably use the magic words, I'd like to have an interactive dialogue with you. They need to document that they've had this interactive dialogue. And then in the course of that dialogue, if they ultimately learn that the employee does in fact have a disability, then they have to provide reasonable accommodation. So the two key things to meet the law are do interactive dialogue, provide reasonable accommodation. But it's a very, very complex area of the law and disciplining employees that have a disability or have a workers' comp claim going, it's difficult. I I know some employees will be very frank about why they're gone, right? I have a medical appointment. I've got this type of appointment. But I also understand that there are, you know, leaves or time that they could take off as personal or otherwise that we wouldn't, as a public employer, wouldn't necessarily know. What does this case do in that area? Say, so you have an employee who continually takes time off but isn't specifying to the employer that it's for medical-related purposes. Does this new requirement still compel the, the employer to, in essence, reach out and, I wouldn't say pry into the, the employee's reasons for being absent, but is, is that inherent in this kind of requirement now that if they're taking time off, we should be checking in and seeing why, if we can help? Great question. <laughs> Difficult question. So these cases are case by case, totality of the circumstances, very factual uh, dependent. Now in the particular case of the, the county case that I'm talking about, the, the county, when they, when the court looked at it, there was a lot of data that showed the county probably really should have known that there was a medical issue going on here. So it does, I think, heighten the bar for, in answer to your question, I think it's yes, that the bar has been raised about dialing in for when employees are routinely gone. So, and if they're using sick leave, for example, as opposed to- Personal time. Yes, right, then that may also be evidence. Why are you using sick leave? Well, my child's been ill. Well, we don't have a disability issue to worry about. But if it's for my own medical appointments, then now is the time they may need to say, is there any support you need? Do you believe you need some form of reasonable accommodation to do the essential functions of your position? Sorry, go ahead, Kathy. Sorry. sorry. No, I I think it's important to keep in mind that it's not about an invasion of privacy of the employee. It's really about making sure that the employee knows that there are accommodations available to them if they need them. And so it's it's an obligation on, on the employer to open up that door to the conversation. And if they don't want to disclose, right. I assume that, you know, we've got evidence that we offered, asked. They want we've to had ask. an interactive dialogue. The employee acknowledges they are not disabled, need no reasonable accommodation. I send a one paragraph uh, email saying, thanks for meeting with me. You're good to go. Right. Uh, we're going to return to the the new or should have known language here in a bit on another matter. But, Mike, what about the changes on the the, uh, the probationary period for classified employees. And I know we've talked that this is also an item that we've recently covered in one of our labor and employment legislative updates, but I think there's some unique concepts and ideas and, and considerations that, that you bring to the fold when we talk about this statute. So can, can you bring right, something so current, in on that? Current law is for a merit system district, those that have personnel commissions, they have a six month rule essentially for probationary classified um, employment. For the non-merit system district, it can be up to a year. Some districts negotiate nine months or six months. But on the whole, 
merit system, six months, non-merit systems, a year, to simplify this conversation. So the new law is trying to make that the same. So now the non-merit system, which is the majority of the school districts in California, are going to have a shortened probationary period. So it's not good news if you're the HR director and you're monitoring your classified staff because you have now less time to evaluate them and to decide whether or not you want to grant them permanent status. Right. So under the new law, it's going to be six months or 130 days of paid service, whichever is longer. So I think it's entirely possible that school districts are going to be sitting at the bargaining table and the exclusive representative for the classified employees will say something like, well, why don't we just change it from one year to six months? And I think it would be a mistake for the school district to agree to that language. The school district is probably going to be best served by using the exact statutory language, six months or 130 days of paid service, whichever is longer, and then apply that on an individual basis. So for example, if you hired an employee, uh, a new bus driver on September 1st, the longer probationary period is probably going to be the six month. However, you hired that same bus driver on May 1st because of the fact that bus drivers tend to be 10 month employees, work the school calendar, and they're not gonna work the summer, it's probably the 130 days of paid service. So, you, so from the employer's perspective, we want that whichever is longer language right. to be the language that we put into our negotiated um, agreements. The other little maybe nuance that I don't know if people have talked about is that the merit system district for its management folks, you can have a one year period. So you have to kind of get down into the law, then change in the law affected the non-merit system district. It did not affect the merit system district for those folks who were, for example, classified management. Okay, right. So they could still have a one-year period if that is the rule that that personnel commission adopted. And uh, hearkening back to my discussion with Michelle Cannon on this, this is something, too, that what's the end timeline to get this in place? Is it 2022? Is that kind of the end date? It's um, going into effect on January 1, 2020, just yep. around the corner. Or <laughs> this is where it gets a little another wrinkle here when the collective bargaining agreement is renewed or expired. Okay. Right, so it's something that, regardless, all all of our school districts and county offices of ed who have classified employees are going to have to be ready to address at the bargaining table on their next go around. Yes, right. it's just around the corner. And what I think is really um, interesting in Mike's example here is that between six months and 130 days, it sounds like oh, there's really not much difference there. But actually, when you put it in the context of specific employees of when they're hired and the school year, there can be a huge difference. Right. Interesting. Yeah, that's a great point, Mike. Thanks, Kathy. Um, the the next case we're going to go to, we're going to shift to AL versus Clovis Unified, Kathy. And I know a little bit about this case because we are we are counsel for Clovis Unified uh, in the matter, which is now before the Ninth Circuit. And oral argument has just been set for February 11th in the case. But Kathy, walk us through the the issues at play in AL, and perhaps maybe a little bit of a overview of how it interacts with the Paul G case. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm very excited for Education Legal Alliance to be involved in this case, so um, it's a great So are we. Yes, exactly. So in this particular case, the student um, had not filed a due process hearing initially and went straight to federal court. Um, it's a very complicated case, and I'm not going to get into the, to the meat of it, of the facts, but uh, the point of 
what should happen is that when you have a case that alleges a failure to provide FAPE or anything else within the due process context, the students should have to file for due process and have a hearing before the case gets into federal court. And the whole point of that is because we have an entire system, an Administrative Practice Act system, set up by the Office of Administrative Hearing and Administrative Law Judges who are experts in this field, who can then hear the facts of the case and provide a result that can be appealed to federal court, but you really should not be able to skip that step and go straight to federal court. And so in this particular case, um, school districts bring a motion to dismiss when a student has failed to uh, exhaust their administrative remedies by going through that process first. And the um, issue in this particular case is whether or not you could bring that initially with a motion to dismiss or whether you have to wait till you litigate and go through some discovery prior to bringing the motion. And if students are, if school districts are required to have to go through the discovery process and litigate the case before bringing this motion to the court, that's going to cost school districts a lot of money. And um, historically, it has been through a motion to dismiss to be able to bring a failure to exhaust administrative remedies. And so ELA is supporting the district in this particular regard. Right. Case. Yeah. And I think so for years, that's how we did it, right, was motion to dismiss. And the Ninth Circuit issued this pain decision back in 2012 or so, which said failure to exhaust is an affirmative defense as opposed to jurisdictional. Therefore, we're going to expect in most instances, unless on the face of the complaint it's clear, you're going to have to go to summary judgment first. The Fry opinion has done us a great favor in making clear from the Supreme Court's perspective as to the test to measure a complaint, i.e. at the motion to dismiss stage, as to whether or not failure to exhaust is there. But the other piece, though, at issue in AL, which I know, I know uh, ELA has also uh, provided helpful briefing on uh, in their amicus brief, is this idea of if you settle, because um, in this case in AL, no due process filed, straight to court on 504 and 88 claims, case starts, then they file for due process, then they settle, but but um, in that settlement, all that's resolved is the IDEA due process case. And so also at issue in AL is whether or not that settlement constitute exhaustion. And so I, I know that uh, CSBA just wrote a summary in recent recent time about the Paul G case. If you kind of fill us up on that one. Sure, absolutely. Well, I can talk about the fact that um, when you settle a case, you deprive a lot of reasons, there's a lot of reasons to settle a case, and it can be beneficial to both parties to settle a case, and absolutely, if settlement is the right result in the particular case, absolutely, that should, should be what happens. But it also takes the case out of the context of a trial. And so when you have an administrative hearing in front of an administrative law judge, you're having a trial on the facts. And that administrative law judge is able to issue a decision on those facts. And you can appeal it again and go further from there. But when you settle the case, you don't have the benefit of that kind of decision on the facts of the case that were presented during this trial. Right. And so settlement is not an exhaustion of the administrative remedies that you have available to you when you go to trial. And so that is also a second uh, component of there. the closed so, and there's So and Paul G., a recent Ninth Circuit case, that we actually, I think, in the underlying motion to dismiss papers in AL, we cited to the district court decision in Paul G. Ninth Circuit has issued a ruling in Paul G. in the last three months or so where it says what you just explained, Kathy, that exhaustion is not met by settlement. So if you've 
have 504 and 88 claims, which are based upon a denial of an essence FAPE, and you've settled that IDEA case, that does not equate to exhaustion and thus open the door to federal court, which as the, the, the three of us were speaking before we started today, opens up some other complicated issues when it comes to prospectively resolving due process uh, complaints where you have opposing counsel intending to also initiate federal court litigation on 504 and 88 claims. Yeah, the irony is the school district won, but now we have the unintended sort of boomerang effect of it potentially making it more difficult to settle special education cases. So if there's any claim of discrimination that might come forth under 504 or the ADA, some plaintiff's attorneys are now refusing to settle because it might not have exhausted their administrative remedies, leaving the school district now having to go to, to a due process hearing. But they want doesn't to settle, want to do that. Right. They want to settle. They want to spend money on children's education and not attorneys, which is the goal we all want. Right. And yet they're now forced to go forward to a hearing because the plaintiff's attorney believes that that's legally required. And so now we're going to have larger demands and we're going to have to work out a lot of technicalities. And, and back to all of these cases, one of the things that I think we need to remember is the school board needs to be involved at an early stage and updated throughout the litigation. Because sometimes in the special education world, the special ed director and the attorney gets so involved in these cases that it doesn't work its way up to the school board quickly enough. And I think that's an important thing that we always need to remember is to involve all levels of administration and the board so no one is caught off guard. And we may now need to involve counsel, like JPA counsel or insurance counsel, earlier right. so that if there's an actual claim for damages for discrimination under ADA or 504, we have insurance coverage for that claim. That's an excellent point, Mike. Yeah, and I will just plug our um, CSBA's online learning center. We are uh, bringing out uh, more modules, including a module on special education for board members uh, so that they know the basics because uh, special education, as we all know, is full of acronyms, right? And right. so uh, it's really a sort of a second language. And so we are coming out with that soon. Um, so that's a plug for our online learning center. Yeah. And often what the board sees when it comes to special ed is every time they're enclosed being offered a, a settlement to resolve things too. Right. Yeah, this is interesting stuff. I mean, I do think the refusal to settle because of a concern by plaintiff's counsel that 504 and ADA can't be carved out, which historically it, it can and has been, goes to an issue of whether or not under Fry exhaustion is now back to being considered jurisdictional as opposed to an affirmative defense. And I think unless and until we have a clear case on that, we could have continued complications. If a court comes out and says, nope, still an affirmative defense, and I think we can carve it out in settlements. But yeah, and just as I remember the context that Fry is the United States Supreme Court decision in which we had a young girl with her dog who wanted to bring the dog into her little kindergarten class, and that case made its way to the Supreme Court and essentially said that school districts could be liable in damages for discrimination, whereas typically folks that live in the special education world are used to seeing a case in which if you lose, you provide compensatory education services. You don't have to get out your checkbook and write a big check. Right. That's right. Thanks for explaining, Fry Mike. See, this is what my family goes through when I just start tossing out case names at home and they're like, they don't even respond though. They just let me just keep talking without, without any context. Let's, uh, from there, um, let's shift to, how about the, the new law in terms of sexual abuse 
um, and the statute of limitations, Kathy. I know this is a big one that CSBA has been monitoring closely, one which, Mike, I'm sure you've been involved in trainings and guidance over the years, and this has just become a very obviously robust area for litigation and big settlements. And now the legislature has changed the, the goal mark again. Yeah, I would say they changed the name of the game. So in this particular bill, it's AB 218. And this renames and expands the definition of child abuse to childhood sexual assault. And it's defined as any act that was committed against a plaintiff that occurred when the plaintiff was under the age of 18 and that would have been prohibited by a category of crimes in the penal code, such as molestation, sodomy, enforceable sexual, sexual penetration, and annoying and molesting a child. Those are the kinds of cases that I did for the majority of my career as a DA, and I know how difficult they are. CSBA opposed this uh, legislation not because we don't support victims of sexual misconduct and do not believe that they should ever be subjected to that, but because we wanted to include preventative measures or a fund of some kind so that we're not taking away the funds for our kindergarten students now to pay for claims that, that occurred many, many years ago. But unfortunately, this bill did pass um, and it extends the statute of limitations for filing claims of childhood sexual assault to 40 years of age or up to five years after discovery, whichever is later. And it also includes treble damages. That is three times the compensatory damages or actual damages based on um, if the assault was the result of a cover-up, quote-unquote. And cover-up is defined as a concerted effort to hide evidence relating to childhood sexual assault. It also allows for, continue with the, the bad news for school districts in this particular regard, it also allows for actions to be commenced after a person's 40th birthday if the local educational agency knew or had reason to know or was otherwise on notice, quote unquote, mm -hmm. and of any misconduct. And if the school district or, or county office of education failed to take reasonable steps or to implement reasonable safeguards. And then finally, uh, the law also opens up a three-year window for victims of any age to sue on previously expired claims that have not been, quote unquote, litigated to finality. Right. And litigated to finality is not defined, but it could potentially include previously settled cases, as we just indicated, because when you don't litigate it to finality, you haven't exhausted your ability to bring the case into court. That was one of the things that really surprised me, Kathy, because the prior version of the law excluded not only cases that were resolved through a final judgment or final litigation, but also cases that were settled. The The concept of now un, you know, opening back up those cases and is the rationale that that the settlement could have been based upon previously existing laws that might have limited the claim. And so in theory, the what was agreed to is less than what the, the potential plaintiff could, could, could get. Yes, I think yeah. you're hitting the nail on the head on that. Um, but unfortunately, it also means that records um, that might have been available back then or, or might not be persons that might have been employed back then might not be now. I mean, it places public agencies and it's school districts and local city and county governments, but not state agencies, by the way, that were exempted. Um, but it places the public agencies that are subject to this bill in a really, really difficult position. You're, I mean, calling witnesses from 25, 30 years ago, if they're still around, what a... The concept of this yeah. law is so frightening. The more you think about it and the more frightening it becomes, it feels like that the takeaway has to be 
how seriously we have to take the safety of our kids. Right, right, right. We've got to own that concept. Of course, it's in the California Constitution that our students have a right to save schools, but the need to be proactive, the need to take preventative message, um, measures, the needs to be involved in training of staff and being sensitive to listening to students so that we wouldn't have to face some allegation of a cover-up. Maybe that's the real takeaway, is that we need to make sure we're solving the problems as soon as we see them and taking steps to have a welcoming enough climate that we're not allowing it to happen in the first place. And that's policy driven too, right? I know CSB has a model, Kathy, right? Yes, actually, we just came out. So one of our updates this year in 2019 was board policy 4219.24, which was maintaining appropriate adult and student interactions. That's key in having in place so that um, your employees know what they can and cannot do and so that HR knows what they can take action on as well. And so um, that's one of the key pieces that you want to do in terms of putting in reasonable safeguards to protect against childhood sexual assault. It seems like another area, Mike, that I've seen a lot on here is training so that staff can identify characteristics of grooming um, so that when we see that type of behaviors that maybe, you know, if not paying close enough attention could just easily pass by that so so our HR departments are aware of and, and supervisors are aware of what to watch closely for? Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. point well taken. And, and I'm thinking about one of the questions that the panel got today was, well, how are we supposed to actually get rid of the bad apple teachers? Uh, because it's so difficult in California. It was hearkening, mm -hmm. in my mind, back to the Vergara case where yes. we really tried to deal with the question of uh, more effective procedures to be able to fire a permanent employee, right. right? So probationary teachers, of course, can be can be released with a March 15th notice, but for that permanent employee that you perhaps see grooming happening, how does that work? And that is incredibly difficult, and California has probably the most protective statutes in, in the nation. But one of the thoughts that was coming to my mind is that we did have a California Supreme Court case, could be at least 10 years ago now, out of the Atwater School District, in which the teacher coach was accused of childhood um, assault, um, male coach, male cross-country athletes. And that case made its way to the California Supreme Court over the statute of limitations question. Because as a general rule, you cannot go back more than four years, right? So think about that four-year rule when you're looking at, at cases like this, where the person says, I'm in therapy and I just realized I was abused back in when I was a high school student. That all happened 20 years ago. Right. Well, wait a minute. That teacher may still be working for you, but is the four-year rule going to prevent you from now terminating the teacher when the allegations are just now coming to your attention? That is exactly the fact pattern that we had in the Truett case with Atwater. And the California Supreme Court carved that out and said, no, it's really the four years from the time you knew or should have known. So in that case, that's a helpful case for school districts to be able to take disciplinary action against that teacher if they're still in your employment when the allegations are surfacing, as Kathy's indicating, years later. And there's some unique procedures, Kathy, in this bill, right, for for those who are, the, you know, the 40-year-old the who's receiving therapy and is coming forward, some very unique procedures for what they need to do to validate um, in essence, the good faith nature of the allegations they're bringing forward. Yes, you're absolutely right. In fact, there are requirements on attorneys um, in terms of the complaint that they're filing and um, ver verification, basically, um, with regard to the complaint. And so 
uh, that's all um, in the bill as well. Yeah, so the real takeaway for me, though, is to, re to go back to the basics, right? So whether it's the Catholic Church and the role of the priest, or it is the public school system and the role of the teacher, the teacher is a role model. The teacher has a special relationship to the students, and we as the school district folks have a unique obligation to ensure that safe environment. And right. Just got to be in front of this issue. Right, but that, and I 100% agree, um, and we have to protect the students against foreseeable torts, and foreseeable torts do not include sexual assault of children. However, school districts can become liable just in the basics, just like Mike was saying, in terms of negligent hiring and retention of, of teachers, as well as negligent supervision. Uh, so those are the areas that absolutely need to be um, locked down in terms of policy, in terms of procedures um, for the school districts. Yeah, see, Kathy's point's really well taken. Now, connecting that back to the labor and employment world, yep. the school district may, given this new law, need to spend the 200000 I'm pulling a number out of the air, to fire the teacher that you think is grooming and to take that on, as opposed to saying, gosh, that's so expensive, I can't afford to fire the teacher, because the cost downstream could be in the millions. Right. Well, and, and in fact, I mean, I'm thinking of a case right now that we had a, had a fact pattern for a district that the, the Commission on Professional Competence actually voted 2-1 not to terminate the teacher. It was based upon alleged um, inappropriate touching of two special ed education students, breasts and other areas. It went up to the Superior Court, Stanislaus County. That judge flipped the, the underlying decision and said, nope. Uh, he thinks on that record uh, termination was proper and that the the clinical, Kathy, you'll know the, the name of the interviews, when they interview students from a, uh, you know, they have like a psychiatrist and others interview the students yes. in that process. And I'm losing like, right. <laughs> so, uh, We use the sexual assault response team to be able to come in and, um, and we had a particular center in my former job with regard to uh, videotaping children so that they're not interviewed more than once and you get their fresh uh, impressions. And you measure their credit, professionals measure their credibility. So yes. Superior Court reverses, but then all the way up to the Court of Appeal, and because of the standards in which it is so complicated to overturn or terminate a teacher, the, the Court of Appeal actually reversed that decision $400,000 later. Wow. Um, after all those, a hearing before the CPC, then the trial court, and then the Court of Appeal. But I think what you just described, I don't, I don't, I live in hindsight, I don't think the district could have done anything different. Exactly. Had to move forward. Exactly. And I think one, uh, your, your question um, made me think of one point that I didn't address this morning, and that is coordination with local law enforcement. So when you have these cases and you have suspected grooming behavior, you've got to have a good relationship and coordination with local law enforcement. And so to the extent that our school districts can do that, now's the time. You know, we've we've been chatting for almost fifty minutes now, you two, and this has been this has been great. You know, I would I, I think um, I know you two have very busy schedules. Both of you presenting more than once at this year's conference, um, and again, I like I said, my meager fifteen years in practice does nothing to the sixty-five across the table that I'm looking at. It's uh, a great pleasure of mine for us to chat. Is there any kind of thoughts that you want to that either of you would like to put out there as we look forward to 2020, or as to the conference itself? I just, this is my first time attending as a staff member, and I am blown away by the quality of this conference for school board members. I just, 
just attended the general session and the spotlight luncheon, and I was brought to tears. Yes, a lawyer brought to tears. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we need to be 24-7 learners and lifelong learners, and that's what this conference is really all about. Well, and I hope our listeners are learners today, too. Thank you for joining us today. Please feel free to check out our other podcast at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast. You'll find all of our podcasts there, including resources that relate to this and other subjects we've covered. And subscribe so you don't miss any of these. Kathy, Mike, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, guys. Happy holidays. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.